Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we're into November already. Hard to believe that the holiday season is fast approaching, but I uh, don't want the month to slip by without acknowledging Veterans Day earlier this month. We in healthcare are so cognizant of the unique sacrifices our nation's 14 million veterans have made. And unfortunately, we often see it played out in the healthcare arena. Well, the Veterans Administration is making dramatic strides in recalibrating their health system to accommodate this increased VA patient population of of recent years. Millions of veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan uh, have created a significant increase in the need and demand for services. But, you know, Secretary McDonald is working very aggressively to modernize the care delivery system, make it more responsive. And he's also really offering health care professionals that are seeking health care careers a chance to be part of the solution in the VA system, which is very promising. Mm-hmm. And the VA has been doing some aggressive recruiting of medical students to work for the VA, but really a majority of American veterans and their families receive their health care outside the VA system. And there's growing concern that the general medical community is missing symptoms unique to veterans, in particular post-traumatic stress disorder, hearing loss from explosions and toxic chemical exposures from the battle theater. These issues are not only affecting veterans, but their families and loved ones as well, Margaret. Well, I think it's very intriguing that there's a new initiative being promoted by the VA, and that would make military medicine a required part of general medical training. You know, currently there is no protocol in primary care uh, to ask if a patient or family member has served in a war overseas, although we we certainly in primary care are now asking if people are veterans. So making that one question mandatory, that might open the door to more targeted clinical assessments in a timely fashion before those underlying issues erupt into major health issues. You know, adapting health systems to meet the large population needs is something our guest today is quite familiar with. Dr. Harpreet uh, Sood is a senior fellow to the CEO of the National Health Service of England, uh, England's single-payer system that provides access to care for all of its citizens. Both the United States and the UK are undergoing significant health reforms, and Dr. Sood has worked as a clinician in both countries. So he really has a unique point of view on the strengths and and also some of the challenges or perhaps weaknesses of both of the health systems. Lori Robertson also stops by the managing editor of factcheck.org, is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love to hear from you, and we'll get to our interview with Dr. Harpreet Sood in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. When sprinting, it's a numbers game. The findings in a recently released study, the Systolic Blood Pressure Intervention Trial, or SPRINT, showed patients receiving more aggressive therapies for hypertension were able to greatly reduce their systolic blood pressure rates. Those early results indicated that lowering systolic blood pressure to a rate of 120 rather than the standard target of 140 reduced the relative risk of heart attack, heart failure, and stroke by nearly a third and the risk of death by almost a quarter. The results were so significant, researchers ended the study years earlier than planned. It was conducted at the University Hospital Case Medical Center in Cleveland and included more than 9,000 patients who had high blood pressure but no diabetes. 
The mean blood pressure in the intensive treatment group was about 15 points lower than the standard treatment group, yielding those better survival outcomes. Clinicians who enact the intensive approach face challenges, though, managing stricter interventions, which require more patient monitoring as well as clinical support. Montana has become the latest state to expand Medicaid in their own version approved by the federal government. In the first week of open enrollment, 5,500 state residents signed up for coverage under that expansion. Medi-Cal, California's Medicaid program, covers 12 million people in that state. Good news for access, but not, it seems, for outcomes when there's a cancer diagnosis. A study out of University of California, Davis, shows Medi-Cal patients fare far worse than those on private insurance after cancer diagnosis. Many patients not getting the treatments they should. The study showed patients fared about the same as those with no insurance. Also found that Medi-Cal patients were diagnosed with advanced stage 4 prostate cancer more than three times as often as patients with private insurance. And smartphones may be ubiquitous appendages among the nation's young adults, but all that digital access doesn't always translate into success when using health-related apps. Researchers at Duke wanted to see if cheap weight loss apps developed on the phones could help the 35% of the young adult population in this country who are overweight or obese. In the study, a third were given the app, a third given personal coaching sessions on exercise and weight loss, and a third given pamphlets on achieving healthy diet and weights. The personal coaching group had lost more weight than the other two, but that lead vanished at the one- and two-year follow-ups. Researchers had hoped this relatively inexpensive intervention would provide a low-cost solution for the looming health threat of so many overweight young adults. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Harpreet Sood, Senior Fellow to the CEO of the National Health Service of England, where he's involved with transformation of care models, as well as digital health and innovation through England's health system. Dr. Sood is an advisor to Partners Health Innovation in Boston and has served as a DeLand Fellow at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He was co-founder of the startup Mighty Lungs. He earned his medical degree at King's College, London, and his Master's of Public Health at Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, Dr. Suit, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Oh, fantastic. You, you have a special perch, uh, having worked on both sides of the pond, and I, I think it's fair to say that the healthcare system of our two countries, there are some uh, similarities in scope and purpose, but also some real uh, significant differences. And the National Health Service of UK is founded in 1948 on the basic principle that all citizens should be entitled to free access to comprehensive health and therapeutic services. And conversely, here in the United States, we're pretty much on a fee-for-service model, and that has priced out many Americans out of decent care. And I wonder if you can describe for our listeners some of the hallmarks of each system as well as some of the strengths and weaknesses. No, absolutely. I think it's important to reflect on this both you know, from a policy perspective, but also to share some of my own personal experiences and having the good fortune of spending a bit of time in the U.S. and also now coming and working at a more of a national policy role here in England. You know, starting with the UK, I think it's important to highlight that key strength of the national health system here. Uh, and on top of that, we have a you know, robust primary care system, which, you know, has been around for decades. And, you know, you recently saw with the Commonwealth Fund report that came out that 
UK health system still ranks as one of the leading health systems in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, these are kind of, you know, important uh, hallmarks for uh, the strengths of the, the UK system. Looking at the US, in its own ways, has its own strengths. You know, the fact that it has world-class research facilities and, you know, innovation going on, the pockets of care that are provided at an excellent level is great policy perspective. You know, the academic medical centers you have here, the Kaisers, the Mayos, the Cleveland Clinics, you know, Massachusetts, we, we talked about, you know, on the West Coast, you know, we have a whole range with UCSF and Caremore. I mean, I'm just giving out a, a whole host of names here, but there are obviously a lot, a lot more that do it. But I think, obviously, what you touched about with regards to the fee-for-service aspect of things is, is quite important because I think we are now at that stage where, you know, both sides of the pond, we're looking at sustainability. We're looking at how can the health system move forward that is sustainable. You know, both sides of the pond, we've invested a lot of money uh, over a number of years on acute care. But now the question arises, is that sustainable? And I think, and I wouldn't call that weakness per se, mm-hmm. but it's something that's changing. You know, now we're looking at the facts. How do we actually make it more sustainable so that from our perspective, the UK's perspective, you know, when that value to taxpayers comes and the value to the public is, is we're accountable for, what are we doing to develop sustainable strategies? And we are seeing now where where we are looking, you know, to invest more in the community, more in prevention, mm-hmm. and take that care out of acute hospitals into the community. And we're also starting to see that in the U.S. now with the whole population health approach that we're seeing, mm-hmm. you know, with bundle payments and, uh, and these large health systems and others who are now also starting to invest in communities and primary care because that's how we see sustainability happening. And care being closer to people's homes or in their homes, you know. So we must leverage on those strengths to address some of the weaknesses. Well, Harpreet, I want to just uh, take a little bit of a deeper dive into it. You know, the American health system is certainly uh, criticized and uh, not without good cause for its fragmentation. Until the passage of the Affordable Care Act, certainly tens and tens of millions of Americans were just functionally left out of the system and relied, if anything, on care in the emergency room and had no access to a primary care provider. And reform certainly is changing that reality in the U.S., but we look at the U.K. where access to care is a given, considering the universal coverage there, and the fact that consumers pay no fees, as you noted, uh, at the point of care is still uh, kind of a novel concept, I think, over here where people are really grappling with out-of-pocket costs. But the U.K. system actually goes a step further than all of this and ensures that access to care is a guaranteed right. I'd love for you to comment on the NHS Constitution. What what healthcare rights exactly does it aim to protect or guarantee, and how does that expand upon the mission of the NHS? You know, we spend 10 pence in every one pound in the UK on healthcare. So it is a big part of our public and public society. So you can see that that we have a rich history with the NHS here. And ultimately, the NHS belongs to the people. So the constitution you talk about, you know, we have the principles and values and just touching upon some of the principles that guide uh, the NHS, for example. Number one, that the fact that NHS provides a comprehensive service available to everyone, irrespective of gender, age, you know, race, disability, sexual orientation, religion, as well as some of the other principles that we must look at. For example, access is based on clinical need and not on the individual's ability to pay. The fact that you know, the NHS aspires to be of the highest standards of excellence and of professionalism. The NHS aspires to put patients at the heart of everything it does. The NHS is committed to uh, providing best value for taxpayers' money and the most effective way possible with the finite resources we have. And finally, that 
that the NHS is accountable to the public communities and its patients that it serves. And in fact, all of what we do in terms of our strategy and outlook is based on those kind of principles. The constitution that was brought up, you know, it was developed in 2013 and, you know, it's something that was going to be renewed every 10 years. Uh, is an important aspect of how we and how we aim to protect them. And again, the NHS Five Year Forward View, for example, is based upon all those principles and values we talk about. You know, Dr. Sue, right now, both countries are struggling with the health reform that's going on. And, you know, certainly here in, in the States, uh, the Affordable Care Act is being attacked legally while it's considered the very sweeping uh, change in our healthcare landscape since Medicare and Medicaid rolled out in, in the late 60s. And in England, you know, you're certainly engaged in a robust debate that's going on about the role of NHS. As Talk a little bit about what's happening in the marketplace there and also the external challenges that are upon you. Yeah. You know, over a number of years now, for example, you know, the NHS has achieved a lot, you know, more than Two-thirds of our UK public believe that the NHS works well. You know, cancer survival is at its highest ever here. Operation waiting lists are down. Early deaths from heart disease are down over 40%. We've got 160,000 more nurses, doctors, and other conditions. You know, compared with, let's say, 2009, we are seeing up to 4,000 more people in our emergency rooms and apartments. You know, 22,000 people more outpatient appointments. So you can see that we are, you know, performing to a very high standard and delivering care. However, demand for care is also you know, rapidly growing. We are still faced with a burden of avoidable illnesses in England you know, from unhealthy lifestyles. One in five adults will smoke. One third of people still drink too much alcohol. You know, there are more people overweight and obese. You know, 70% of the NHS budget is now spent on long-term conditions. But this presents us with new opportunities. You know, we've got new technologies and treatments improving our ability to predict, diagnose, and treat disease. And we're look, and we've got new ways of delivering care. So, you know, we want to dissolve traditional boundaries between how care is delivered. We want to improve the coordination of the care around patients, but also we want to improve outcomes and equality. The NHS published the five-year forward view, which was the first time ever the NHS as a system has come together and published this document, which looks at where is healthcare going in the next five years in England. And it identified three key gaps to this. First was the health and well-being gap. And what this is saying is that if we don't get radical upgrade prevention, we are not going to be achieving what we want to achieve. So we are backing national programs on prevention. So with the NHS Diabetes Prevention Program, giving patients much more control and also harnessing the renewable energy of communities. The second gap is the care and quality gap. And this will be uh, filled in with the whole new models of care that we talked about. So this is not saying that one size fits all in the country. What we want to have is three, four, five maybe care models that work and we can replicate and scale across the country. One is, firstly, is the, the primary and acute care systems. And this is the whole, you know, how are large health systems vertically integrating and you know, having potentially primary care practices, but also community hospitals in a one kind of system approach. Second is, how do we, you know, scale primary care? So, you know, form these kind of multi-speciality community providers which is similar akin to, and I think you may have referred to this when you mentioned the American approach, is the whole ACA model that has been rolled out across the U.S., looking at how are we, you know, uh, at scale providing primary care with speciality care in the communities and having accountable officers who, who will be uh, responsible for providing that care. And thirdly, a key one is, um, you know, how are we providing enhanced care in care homes, so looking after our elderly care population. Mm -hmm. But then we now have added looking at acute care and how we formed urgent care centres around that 
and, and developing uh, what we call vanguards across that. And we have 50 of those in the country all pushing these care models uh, at scale so that we achieve a good replication model across the country. If we don't get more efficient and make more investment, uh, we will have a gap of £30 billion that we've identified by 2020. So you can see where we're headed and the urgency and the need of this transformation that we have to make in order to make the healthcare system in this country more sustainable. Well, uh, Harpreet, I was listening for what I might ask you to comment on that you had not commented on since that was so broad. And I think it would be the issue of workforce. And you mentioned yeah. that you added uh, 140,000 uh, health care providers of, of, yeah. of some kind in there. But, you know, if I 160,000, yeah. 160, yeah. we hear so much in the United States about part of the negative impact on primary care being the incredible mm-hmm. debt load that our uh, young healthcare professionals come out of their training with uh, medicine in particular, but also dentistry, nursing, all the health professions, um, sure. and that this influences the choice of careers needing to uh, really select a more lucrative career. Tell us about how this workforce issue is addressed within the UK in terms of both the cost of education or salary differentials. Just shed a little light on that. So, I mean, compared to the US, for example, medical school here is much cheaper. So, you know, you can pay up to maximum £9,000 a year now at medical school. In my time, I paid £1,000, which is equivalent of $1,500 approximately a year for medical school training compared to the US, where you can pay up to at the end of it, have up to two, dollars $300,000 mm-hmm. debt. So I think that is an important aspect of the workforce here. In terms of salaries, I mean, look, there is a range of, you know, what specialities you choose. And from a central perspective, we do have a kind of scale of pay for uh, trainees as we move along. And then when you get to consultant level, obviously, you, you have your you know, basic pay rate, but that can be supplemented with you know, bonuses or with a bit of private practice on the side. Uh, primary care, you know, from a, a national perspective, is, is well remunerated. But I think uh, it's the attractiveness what, what is, is what gets people uh, excited in order to work for the NHS. For example, you know, the NHS uh, Graduate Managers Training Scheme, which is you know, one of the most sought-after schemes in this country mm-hmm. and probably one of the most competitive things to get into, is, it is a you know, two-year scheme that we have here to train the next generation of managers that huh. come through. And uh, you see the national leadership at the moment, including uh, our current Chief Executive Officer, Simon Stevens, who have gone through that scheme uh-huh. and, and gone on to get uh, achieve stellar careers. But we do face a challenge, like all health systems, um, on how we move forward and how do we actually keep that momentum going. Training, you know, giving them opportunities, providing them with the latest innovation, thinking mm-hmm. uh, and resources is, is an important way of keeping your staff mm-hmm. excited. Uh, and we have just you know, launched for the first time a national program on workplace well-being which is saying that, you know, we will go out there and, and produce uh, workplace wellness mm-hmm. initiatives and programs for our staff in the NHS to not only lead healthier lives, mm-hmm. but, you know, give them that you know, mental health, well-being and mm-hmm. space to um, really thrive on uh, what they're doing uh, and doing it well. We're speaking today with Dr. Harpreet Sood, Senior Fellow to the CEO of the National Health Service of England, where he's involved with transformation of care models as well as digital health and innovation through the English health system. Dr. Sood is an advisor to Partners Health Innovation in Boston. Harpreet, you had a real great opportunity. You've had a lot of great opportunities uh, uh, at Harvard and uh, where you, you were really able to dabble in the startup culture. And uh, yeah. you and your colleagues were examining how technology, specifically gaming, 
could improve the yeah. landscape for patient management. I want to understand what your thought process was, what uh, outcomes you might have saw, and also uh, tell our listeners about the, the Mighty Lungs Project. This was a project that was funded by the uh, Harvard Medical School where we got a seed grant to go and kickstart a project with the local community health center in really trying to solve their problem of pediatric asthma medication adherence and how do we actually incentivize kids to take their inhalers and this was a big problem because 40 to 50 percent of their children would end up in the emergency room because they weren't taking their medication and one of the things that i encourage a lot of uh, entrepreneurs is that how do you go about solving real problems to our providers so this was a real problem that we were trying to solve for them and then ultimately realized actually this was a problem at scale across globally. And so our plan was really to firstly develop a video game that would incentivize children to take their inhalers. And then we uh, were in the process of developing a sensor. So every time they took their inhaler, we could monitor that and, and you know send them reminders and messages and hopefully uh, be well because you know, we want to make it more of a fun process for them so that they take it concept was great. We developed a storyboard for the video game, a lot of focus groups. But ultimately, I think the timing wasn't quite right and it failed. But a great opportunity to learn about the whole startup experience, the culture, working with a, you know, a great team. And, you know, moving on now, I think it's, it's, it's important um, that what this experience really should, and this is a great thing about the American system, A, the culture, which you talked about, but secondly, the ability to take risks, mm-hmm. you know, and if projects don't work, let's uh, close them early, which is what we did. But I think going back now, if we were to do something again like this, we wouldn't set ourselves such a tall order and maybe bit by bit and doing incremental innovation, which will ultimately lead to, I think, bigger gains. That experience uh, in Boston, the ecosystem, the great people at Brigham Women's, for example, I was quite involved with uh, helping set up the uh, innovation hub there, there called the iHub which, uh, you know, does exactly that. It kind of handholds, guides, you know, frontline clinicians and managers to go and innovate and, and takes their ideas from ideas into actually fully-fledged uh, startups projects. And, yeah, and we're starting to see that in the UK now, uh, in the NHS, for example. You know, great experience to learn with Mighty Lungs, and, and I'm helping now to kind of diffuse that learning in, in the NHS in England. Well, we have in common, uh, you know, tsunami in the increase in uh, patients with type 2 diabetes, and particularly what we see coming in through our adolescents. And diabetes is both about the basics, diet, exercise, medication, yeah. uh, but it also requires that we think about innovation and we think about taking some risk. Can you tell us a little bit about the diabetes prevention program that's being implemented, which you're overseeing? You know, type 2 diabetes constitutes for over around 90% of all those with diabetes in England. And the prevalence is continuing to rise at an alarming rate. And, you know, we, we spend uh, the, the human cost, uh, the annual NHS cost of treating diabetes are estimated to be around £10 billion, which is, you know, roughly 10% of our NHS budget. Uh, so you can see the scale and the gravity of the situation. Yet the Diabetes Prevention Program, you know, th- this was a kind of randomized control trial you know, five major randomized control trials have been conducted, you know, China, Finland, U.S., Japan, and India, actually, and they've documented 30 to 60% reductions in type 2 diabetes incidents in adults uh, with, uh, who have impaired fasting glucose through intensive lifestyle interventions that you talk about. The biggest out of these was the uh, U.S.-based uh, diabetes prevention program, and you know, that showed that people with impaired glucose tolerance who lost 5 to 7% of their body weight uh, and achieved that in 150 minutes of moderate physical activity per week 
reduce their chance of getting type 2 diabetes by 58% over an average two to three years. You know, those numbers speak for themselves. And if this was a drug of some sort, you know, we would already be using this. And it's taken us nearly 12, 13 years in England to realize that this is an important program that we need to push forward. So we are really going for a national kind of program here where uh, we want coverage throughout the whole country and be the first country in the world that has a national NHS diabetes prevention program. And we plan to have this program rolled out over the next five years. And, and this, again, you know, rolls back to the uh, five-year forward view uh, plan that we have, which I've talked about, where prevention is, like I said, a key aspect of our strategy. And this is an example of how we want to use this moment uh, in the NHS to encourage individuals and communities to really think about their health. And I think if we can demonstrate this and pave the way with this program, that will really pave the way for prevention to be taken more seriously uh, in this country. It will also demonstrate from a financial perspective, it makes sense. From a social perspective, using our existing infrastructure around primary care, we need a proactive primary care system uh, to achieve this. We've been speaking with Dr. Harpreet Sood, Senior Fellow to the CEO of the National Health Service of England. You can learn more about his work by going to the web, england.nhs.uk, or follow him on Twitter at H-S-S-O-O-D. Harpreet, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you for the invitation, and great talking to you both. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? At the fourth Republican presidential debate, Texas Senator Ted Cruz repeated the long-running myth that Congress is exempt from Obamacare. Lawmakers and their staffs actually face additional requirements that other Americans don't, thanks to a Republican amendment. Cruz said that, quote, the congressional exemption from Obamacare was fundamentally wrong and that the law should apply evenly to every American. But unlike other Americans who get their insurance through their employers, members of Congress are now barred from directly doing so. As of 2014, they can no longer get health coverage through the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program, as they and other federal employees have done for years. Because of a Republican amendment added to the law, members are required to get their insurance through the Affordable Care Act's insurance marketplaces. But even after the amendment put Congress in the ACA marketplaces, the exempt claim lived on. The federal government had long made premium contributions to pay for part of federal employees' health insurance, including the insurance of members of Congress. And in August 2013, the Office of Personnel Management, which administers the Federal Employees Insurance Program, said that the federal government could continue to make those premium contributions for Congress, even though members were getting insurance through the marketplaces. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare.
Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Healthcare providers are forever on the lookout for that magic elixir that can cure a host of chronic ills in one step. That elixir could be, turns out, a number of steps, as in taking a hike. A large study conducted by several institutions, including the University of Michigan and Edge Hill University in the U.K., looked at the medicinal benefits derived from regular group hikes conducted in nature. We could see that these two different types of help for our mental well-being, they're operating independently. That means that if we go out in nature for a walk, we're getting an additional boost to our mental well-being. Researchers evaluated some 2,000 participants in a program called Walking for Health in England, which sponsors some 3,000 walks per week across the country. There was investment in these walking groups, in training leaders to take people on walks, finding trails that were good for people to do, even if they had health problems. Dr. Sarah Warber, professor of family medicine at the University of Michigan School of Medicine, said this study showed a dramatic improvement in the mental well-being of participants, especially those who had recently experienced something stressful. Depression was reduced, perceived stress was reduced, and people had, they experienced more positive feelings or positive emotions. And there's been really lovely research that's shown that when we have positive emotions, we actually have better health in the long run. The participants almost universally reported reduced stress and depression after participating in group nature hikes, and the effect was cumulative over time. But Dr. Warber says this is the first study that revealed the added benefits of group hikes in nature and significant mitigation of depression. Because we were really interested in whether if you are more stressed, would you get some better benefit from being in nature? And in fact, that did pan out. Walk for Health, a simple guided group nature hike program which incentivizes folks suffering from depression and anxiety to step into the fresh air with others, to talk out their thoughts while taking a hike, improving their mood, reducing their depression, increasing their overall health at the same time. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org and brought to you by the Community Health Center.